Let's pray together. We gather together, our good Father, before your word. We just sung your praises that are so beautifully expressed in some of those old hymns. There is amazing pity, grace unknown, and love beyond degree in what you have accomplished for us at the cross. And we pray for eyes this morning, eyes of faith, to again see the beauty of Christ as it is displayed to us in this passage. And Lord, that you would give each of us grace to have humble hearts before your word, to see how you want to change us and how you want to create us, recreate us, renew us in knowledge after the image of our creator. Do this for the glory of your name and for the good of your church. In Christ's name, amen. We live, if this even needs saying, in a world of division, don't we? All around us in our day, there are deep and deepening divides on just about every issue. Those who can disagree and still remain friends are diminishing. And instead, what we find increasingly true is the mindset, spoken or not, that in order to maintain friendship and civility, disagreement with someone's choices or lifestyle must not only be tolerated, but shared and accepted, even if it is sinful. And if we can't do that, then we can no longer be friends. That is what is increasingly seeming to be the attitude in the day that we live. And all of this comes in the neatly dressed name of tolerance. How ironic that is. But the world shows that it knows nothing of this word, tolerance, or how to achieve anything close to tolerance and peace among its members. And we're not surprised, are we? We're not surprised that the world cannot achieve that, because Scripture paints a very grim picture of humanity apart from Christ. For example, Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And then listen what the effects of that are. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's who we were. Titus, the book that we just finished studying together, verse 3, we ourselves, Christians, brothers and sisters, we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. So we look at the world around us, degenerating, degenerating in its hatred and being hated. And what we see is a world without Christ. And a world acting without Christ. And brothers and sisters, beloved of the Lord, we must be different. We must be different. Starkly different. 
truth of the matter is that within the members of this church, there's a whole army of issues that potentially divide, aren't there? It's been said before, and it's worth saying again, that apart from Christ, there are many of us that would never cross paths in this life. And Christ is what binds us together. We have different backgrounds, different upbringings, different experiences that shape our perspective, don't we? We have different ways of schooling our children, and that's good. We come from different socioeconomic sectors. That's good. We hold different views on political issues. We have different understandings of current events, which are shaped by the various sources through which we get information, which are sometimes different. Brothers and sisters, each one of these things has extreme potential to divide the body of Christ. Each of those differences has the potential to lead us to assume certain things about people in another camp and to put a label on someone who disagrees with us on a particular issue, to make certain judgments based on perceived motives in another, to raise walls between us who are called to be one body in Christ. To put it simply, each one of these differences has the potential to be too important to us. And we must be on guard. Did you know that Jesus prayed for us for Fellowship Bible Church? Not very often. Just one time that I can think of, Jesus prayed for us for Fellowship Bible Church. No, of course, not by name and not us only. But he prayed very specifically for those who would believe in Christ, after, that would believe in him after he had gone away by the word of his disciples. And that would be us. Local churches. This is what Jesus prayed for us. Listen to what's first on his heart. John 17, beginning in verse 20. I do not ask for these only. He's talking about his own disciples right there with him. But also for those who will believe in me through their word. That would be us, right? Over the course of many generations. What does he pray? Verse 21. That they may all be one, just as you are. Father, just as you are, Father, in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. That's extraordinary. Even as Jesus is one with the Father, so he's praying that we will be one with them and with each other. He says, I in them and you in me, so that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. In other words, our unity reflects on God. And our lack of unity will reflect on God. That's what Jesus prays for us. And this isn't an isolated case that this would be first on his mind Paul wrote to the Ephesian church and urged them to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. He wrote to the church in Rome, so then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual building. And that's, of course, in the context of stronger, weaker brother, Christian liberty. Let's pursue what makes for peace. Whatever it is that makes for peace, let's pursue that. So let me ask you the question this morning, church, brothers and sisters. In a world, and particularly a nation, 
that is increasingly divided over everything from who sits in the White House to the coronavirus and how we should deal with it to which media source you listen to? How do we, as Christ's body, maintain unity and pursue peace as Christ commands us? How can we achieve greater oneness as Jesus prayed for us? How can we avoid splitting over the fault lines that the world splits over? You're already with me in Colossians, I hope. Excuse me. The church in Colossae was on the verge of division. Colossae was a huge, or not a huge city, it was actually a pretty small city. It was a city of huge ethnic, religious, and cultural diversity, though. And so it's fair to assume that there were Christians in this young church of all stripes. Different religious backgrounds, certainly most of them were probably not, not even Jewish backgrounds, though some of them likely were. And specifically right now, in the context that Paul is writing to, there were false teachers among them that were bothering their consciences by laying extra rules and regulations on them. That's the context of Colossians. Man-made rules, Jewish ceremonial laws and things like that. Trying to bind their consciences, and it's causing division in the church. Paul writes to this church, and his central message is, basically, be satisfied with Christ. He is enough. He is your unity. In chapter 2, Paul argues that our identity as Christians is in Christ. First and foremost, more than anything else, in Christ. He says that when Christ died for us, we died. We died to our former manner of life, our former passions, and our former ways of living. They're dead with Christ. And when Christ was raised from the dead, we were spiritually raised and given new life, new priorities. At the beginning of chapter 3, Paul says this, if you then... If, if, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. Then, beginning in verse 5, Paul begins to get practical, and that's where we're going to read this morning. With your identity in Christ, brothers and sisters... What should you do? How should you live in view of dying and being raised with Christ? So read along with me, beginning in verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, Free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, 
so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Please pray again with me. Lord, these are your words, and they have a particular relevance for us this morning in the context in which we find ourselves, just as the Colossian church was going to be divided over whether someone was a Jew or a Greek, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. Christ is all, and may he be all among us this morning. And may the unity we share in him rise above the other differences that we have. May our ears be open to your word, for it is your word. In Christ's name we pray, amen. In the passage we just read, brothers and sisters, notice the logic of it. In verses 5 through 9, Paul tells believers there are certain things that must be put to death, eliminated. Because why? They belong to the former manner of life, the old self, things he calls earthly in you. Things that belong to their previous life before they were saved. And those are things like sexual immorality, impurity, evil desire. But it doesn't stop there. Anger, wrath, malice, slander. All of those things must be put to death. Look what he bases, on, what he bases this on is what has already been done. Look at verse 9, 9 and 10. He says, Do not lie to one another. Why? Seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So Paul's referring to something that's already happened. You've already put off the old self. You've already put on the new self. And he's referring to salvation, what's already been done by God in you. And in this passage, Paul is telling them that based on that, they are then to put to death the things that belong to that old nature, that old nature that Christ already killed. Put those things to death. And then notice this interesting verse, brothers and sisters. Look at verse 11. Why is this here? Why is verse 11 here? After saying that, Paul says, Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. In other words, Paul minimizes those other identities. We live in a culture of identity politics. Paul minimizes those other identities and says, he doesn't say they're not important, but he does say, in view of what we do have, Christ, those things are nothing, non-existent. Our identity in Christ is of foremost importance, and that is what we are to emphasize. Now, we're going to spend our time today in verses 12 to 14. I wanted to give you the necessary background so that we understand the context of where verses 12 to 14 come. Paul turns and begins to tell them what they are to put on in light of their identity. Those are the things they're to put off, the things that belong to the former manner of life. Put those off. Put those to death, even. But notice the first thing. He He doesn't say put to life. He says put on. Now, that is a verb in the Greek that just means, it's, it refers to putting on clothing. That's the imagery we're supposed to get here. We aren't, we're supposed to think about these virtues as if we're wearing them. It's what we put on when we go out and interact with the world. It's what adorns us. It's the things that we don't want to be seen without. And here's the logic of this passage, passage brothers and sisters. In verse 12, Paul reminds us of our new identity. He says, as God's chosen ones... 
which leads to new attitudes. The rest of verse 12, Elizabeth gives us five attitudes it should lead to, which in turn produces new conduct. New identity, new attitudes, new conduct. That's the logic of this passage. That order is key. Who we are, that is, who God has made us to be in Christ, shapes first our attitudes and then actions that flow from them. And so I'm calling today's message the lovely garments of Christ's or of God's loved ones. The lovely garments of God's loved ones because he's talking about them as garments. These are what we are to put on in light of who we are as God's loved ones. And my prayer, brothers and sisters, is that we will be astounded by the loveliness of God in Christ and that we then will be motivated and spurred on to clothe ourselves in the lovely garments of his grace. So the first thing to notice in verse 12 is the new identity that we as Christians have. Look how closely Paul links our attitudes with our identity. He says, put on then, so he puts the verb first, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. And then he goes on to say what they're to put on. So he's tying these very closely together. To Paul, this is of utmost importance that before we try to live holy lives, we remember who we are. Because that's going to be what motivates us. So he says, first of all, that we are God's chosen ones. God's chosen ones. God's elect. The people whom God has chosen out of all the people in the world to be his own treasured possession. Not on the basis of anything we did or something we had to offer God or some loveliness within ourselves, but purely on his own grace and mercy. Titus 3, verse 5. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Not our doing. So then notice that, the, that grace, brothers and sisters, grace is at the basis of our entire lives, our entire existence. There is nothing that we have that we deserve. And we need to keep that forefront in our minds. We didn't seek God. He sought us. We didn't choose God if he had not chosen us first. He chose to change our stubborn will and save us. It was while we were sinners and rebels and enemies of God that he saved us, Romans 5.8. So then Paul goes on and he wants to clarify what it means to be God's chosen ones. It isn't some kind of cold choosing. He says God's chosen ones, and he clarifies, holy and beloved, holy. We are set apart for God's purposes. You, if you belong to Christ, are set apart for God's purposes. That's what it means that you are holy. We once were serving ourselves, like in those passages we read earlier, we were serving ourselves, living in the course of this world, but God saved us and set us apart for himself. Through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, he has washed you, he has made you clean, he has removed your guilt, and you are holy. Holiness is something we're called to, but holiness is something we are already. There is a manner of life, there's a holy manner of life that belongs to someone who is already made holy by Christ. And Paul's emphasis here is on the fact that we are already holy. You are already holy. Perfectly clean in Christ. Then Paul says that we are beloved or beloved. This word means dearly loved. Brothers and sisters, how does this define you? These three terms. How often do you define yourself? When you get up in the morning, you are a chosen one of God, holy and beloved. 
And we're dearly loved, again, not because there's anything that God saw as more lovely or more worthy in you than in your neighbor next door who doesn't know him. Mm -mm. There was nothing in me worth saving more than someone who he didn't save. It's not due to me, and it's not due to you. It is all of grace. It's simply his gracious choice to save me. And all I can do is raise my hands and say, thank you, God, for saving me. Brothers and sisters, I want you to notice something. In using these words, Paul is highlighting something very specific. Paul wants you, if you are a Christian this morning, if you belong to Christ, if you have been washed in his blood and redeemed and have your sins forgiven, to know that you are a privileged person of utmost privilege, most privilege imaginable. You belong in the people of God. These three words are words that were applied to the people of Israel in the Old Testament. Paul chose these very specifically. Let me give you one example where they're all used close in proximity to one another. Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 through 8. uh, Moses is speaking to the people of Israel before they enter the promised land. He says, For you are a people holy, there's one, to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you, there's another one, to be a people for his treasured possession. It's not an exact parallel, but it is, a, it is a loved one. It is a dearly loved one. It's treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Now listen to what he says. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you. There it is. And chose you. For you are the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you. That's all the answer you're going to get. It's because the Lord loves you. And is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So Paul is very intentionally, as the New Testament writers do all throughout the New Testament, he is taking these well-known Old Testament terms for the people of Israel and applying them to the church to indicate you are the people of the Lord. You are the chosen ones. <clears throat> And not only this, brothers and sisters, but we need to see something else. These three words are all referred to Jesus as the chosen one, the holy one, and the beloved son. He's called the chosen one, Luke 9.35. He's called the holy one of God, John 6.69. And God himself said from heaven, both at his baptism and then at his uh, transfiguration, he said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. My exclusive, chosen, holy, beloved son. When when Paul reminds believers that they are God's chosen ones, he's reminding them that this is no small thing, brothers and sisters. You belong to God through his son. And it's through Jesus' work, his holy chosen son's work, that you are these things. And therefore, you can't lose them. This is your identity. This is who you are. As you go about your day, you must define yourself by this identity, and it will change everything. You never have to work to be approved of God because all the work has been done by the one who was holy and beloved and chosen. In him, child of God, you are chosen and holy and dearly loved. Do not forget that. What a motivation to live differently, and we'll talk about why as we move on to the new attitudes. 
new attitudes. So we have a new identity. That's supposed to produce new attitudes. What kind of attitudes? Well, back to Colossians. He says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, these things. Now, before we get into them, I want to pose you another question this morning. Think in your minds of a group of people that you would consider to be the most elite, privileged class in our society, in the world. Get that that group of people in your minds. What do you expect those people to be like? What are their attitudes towards other human beings? I can guarantee the first things that come into your mind are not going to be what Paul says here. But this is what we are to be. In verse 12, Paul gives us five attitudes that are fitting for the people of this position, and he urges us to intentionally put them on every day. Every day, just as we do our clothes. When you get up in the morning, put these on. There's intentionality here. These don't just naturally happen. You must strive to put these on, brothers and sisters. It doesn't come naturally to us. And I think, because I was hit personally by just about every single one of these, that all of us will be. And I pray that that's true this morning. And you'll see that these five attitudes overlap with one another significantly, but each one adds a beautiful facet to the diamond of Christian character. And what we'll see is that the reason these garments that we're supposed to wear are so irresistible is because each one is a clear word that is used of God and Christ in other places in the Bible. And we'll look at that. We're going to look at that very close uh, tie that is drawn between those. We're called to model him. So let's look at each one of these in turn. First of all, put on compassionate hearts. Put on compassionate hearts. Hearts that sympathize with and are moved with compassion towards the needs of others and therefore move toward them and are drawn to them in their distress. That's what a compassionate heart is. Hearts that are not repulsed by people's faults that maybe you can see really clearly. That are not repulsed by people's failings but rather pity them for the effect of sin that you see in their life. There's a desire to help in whatever way possible. This is the heart of God for us, isn't it, brothers and sisters? Is God's heart not a heart of compassion? The Lord, the Lord, a God gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, compassionate and gracious. I left that out. That's what I meant to highlight. When you and I were miserable in our sin, and weren't we miserable? Aren't we still miserable? God's heart is of compassion to you. He's the father of mercies. It's the same word as is used here. He's the father of mercies and the God of all comfort. In the book of Romans, Paul sums up God's salvation of sinners with the same word in Greek as what's used here. And he says, in view of God's mercies, it's the same word, compassion. He sums up salvation as compassion. As you look at the sin around you, brothers and sisters, and especially the sin of your brothers and sisters in Christ, what moves you? What determines your response to them? Is your heart embittered? Or does it break? Are you indignant? Or are you compassionate? Let us put on compassionate hearts like the heart of our Savior who moved towards us in our despicability. 
don't know if I made up a word, but in our, who, look, who moves toward us in our sin and in our misery rather than away from us in disgust. Then Paul says, put on kindness. Put on kindness. Now, this word is astounding to be used of us, brothers and sisters, because of the places it's used in other places in Scripture. I want to give you a couple of these. In Romans 2, 4, it's God's kindness to sinners that keeps him from destroying them immediately. And in Titus 3, 4, God's goodness and loving kindness, again, the same word, appeared to save us in the midst of that misery that I already read. Hated and being, hating others and being hated. Kindness refers to a goodness of heart. This isn't just about doing outward actions. It's about a heart that is moved to do good to others. And in particular, someone who doesn't deserve it. That's the idea of kindness. Understand what this means, brothers and sisters, because this is a huge paradigm shift from the way we normally think. This means that we are to put on a mindset of serving others for their sake, even if I get nothing in return. To do them good. This is kindness. It's love in action. In every action concerning others, we should be making it our prayer. Our thought should be, in this situation, what can I do to help? What can I do to be of service to this person? That brother, that sister, that neighbor across the street. To put on kindness is to put on the heart of Christ, who always seeks to do good to others when they don't deserve it, and we never do. So it's a constant heart, and it never fails. And then Paul gets at the heart of kindness, which is humility. Humility. A lowliness of mind. This was a despised character trait in Paul's day. It was not honorable to be humble, to be lowly in mind. Because what this means is to count yourself as least important. Count yourself as least important. This strikes at the heart of our basic sinful human nature, doesn't it? We act out of self-interest. That is what we do as sinful human beings. But we are to give preference to one another. We are to be concerned, concerned with the needs and the preferences of others before self. Philippians 2. We have Christ as our model. Philippians 2, verses 3 to 4. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, and here he gives a beautiful definition of humility. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Count others more significant than yourselves. How many of us do that on a day-to-day basis? How many of us actually do that? Count others more significant than ourselves. And then he gives a further definition. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And then he says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours. In Christ Jesus. The fighter verse we've been memorizing. That's our mind, and we are to put it on. A humble mind. Humility is seeing yourself as a servant. You are not to be served. You are to follow Christ in serving and giving your life for others. It's a noble calling, not in the world's eyes, but in Christ's eyes, it's a noble calling. A constant willingness to sacrifice my wants, my rights, even my own good for the good of another. 
Humility leads to the attitude of Paul in 1 Corinthians 8. This is another discussion on Christian liberty. And in, in that day, just to give you a little bit of background, some people thought that it was wrong to eat meat sacrificed to idols. Some people thought it was fine. And Paul says, we know it's fine. We know it's fine. Our knowledge of Scripture tells us it's fine. There's nothing about meat sacrificed to idols that is inherently wrong. And yet, he says this, beginning in verse 11 of 1 Corinthians 8, and so by your knowledge, he's talking to the people that know, of course I can eat any meat I want to. There's no spiritual value in that. He's talking to those people. He says, by your knowledge, because they were eating that meat anyway, regardless of the fact that some people thought it was wrong, by your knowledge, and he's being a little bit sarcastic here, this weak person is destroyed. The brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. This is no small thing. Therefore, this is Paul's conclusion, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. How many of us have made that kind of commitment when something that we do or a way that we want to live causes a brother or sister to stumble? How, much, how many of us are willing to say, I will never eat meat again if it causes someone to stumble? I will never drink wine, he says in another spot, if that causes someone to stumble. Humility, brothers and sisters, should produce a radical willingness to sacrifice self for the sake of others, whatever it takes. Brothers and sisters, under the topic of kindness and humility, I want to briefly address an issue that I know to be sensitive, and therefore it is in my heart I want to address it sensitively. I really do. As possibly, sensitively as possible as I can. One of the most divisive topics of the day is masks. There are arguments people have for them, why you should wear them. And there are arguments that people have why you should not wear them. And I've heard both. And I can tell you that neither side is a lunatic. I'm not here to argue science. And I won't enter into a sciencible argument with any one of you. I won't do it. Because that's beyond my education level. I'm not going to convince anyone either of their effectiveness or lack of effectiveness. I won't do it. I won't be able to do it. That's not my role. What my role is, is to strive for and encourage you to pursue unity and seek peace. And what I know is that masks should not be a source of division for us. And the arguments distract from the gospel. The arguments distract from the gospel and they break our unity, which reflects on the gospel. So I want to say two things. I want to address both sides, because I know both sides exist in this congregation. And I think that the both sides should start to be diminished at least in practice, whether or not in conviction. Let me say two things. First of all, I want to speak to one side and say if all of us wearing masks 
would make it easier for a brother or sister in Christ to attend worship. Should we not be doing it? Of course, it's not convenient. It's not comfortable. None of us likes wearing them. It's, yeah, it's harder to sing. It's a bit more difficult to breathe. And I understand there are certain cases where it's not possible to wear a mask. And I'm not, I'm not addressing those issues. But if putting the interests of others in humility should always be at the top of our priority list, then does this not seem clear? Especially when we consider that there are some with underlying health conditions that make them more vulnerable than you. There are some who are elderly. There are some that have businesses that being put out of work for two weeks could affect their livelihood for months or years to come. I've said enough, but now let me speak to the other side. Just as Paul would in 1 Corinthians 8, you ought not to pass judgment on the other, the person who is perhaps exercising the liberty. You cannot know their intentions as, you, as much as you think you might. You can't, and you shouldn't try. There may be a good reason for that decision. And the only way you can know that or resolve that issue, if there's an issue that you have, is to have a personal conversation with that person. Tell them your perspective and be willing to listen to their perspective. Strive for kindness. Let's all strive for kindness. And I realize that there's a good number of you that are much more in the middle than on either extreme, if there is an extreme. But all of us, let's strive for kindness and strive for humility. And we must strive, no matter how much the other side irks us, if indeed it does. That even if we can't agree on it, that we're not going to make it the main thing. And we're not going, we're going to resolve to do whatever does not cause our brother or sister to stumble. The main thing is the gospel. The minute that our main topic of conversation is the coronavirus or masks and not Jesus, something's wrong. Something's wrong. The next attitude Paul mentions is meekness. Meekness. This is a word that refers to a gentle spirit, especially toward those who disagree with you or who are living in sin. Paul appealed to the Corinthian church. Remember, the Corinthian church was a church full of division, right? And he appealed to them and he, he said, I appeal to you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Same word. Christ himself said he is gentle and lowly in heart. Gentleness, meekness. Is usually an interchangeable word. Brothers and sisters, there's going to be conflict in the body of Christ. Anyone who's been a Christian for a long time knows that. Anytime you have two sinners or more together, there's going to be conflict. And oftentimes in a conflict, one party is right and the other party is wrong. Sometimes they're both wrong. Sometimes it's simply a matter of opinion and nobody's right or wrong. Right? What's most important is that we put on meekness when there is conflict. Put on meekness in the midst of those conflicts. Really, what meekness is, is humility applied to conflict. 
Humility applied to conflict. It's a willingness to, number one, acknowledge my own ability to be wrong, my finite mind, and two, always keeping in mind that vengeance is the Lord's and whatever wrong is committed, he will repay and I won't. That's meekness. This will guard me from lashing out in anger. This will guard me from taking things too personally and from holding my own opinions too strongly. If I may, let me suggest a few areas where we may need to exercise meekness more. Uh, Conversations about politics. Remember, I'm not omniscient. Conversations about the coronavirus and the best way to respond to it. Any conversation where you're, talk, where you're addressing a brother or sister about sin, remember that I can do the same things, and I do do the same things. And let that inform how you interact about someone else's sin. And virtually any and every interaction on social media, brothers and sisters, meekness isn't cool. It's not trendy, but it is necessary for a child of God. It's not the way the world communicates, but it is the way we are to communicate. Laying ourselves low, prioritizing the opinions and the preferences of others. May our hearts and our lips reflect the beauty of the gentleness of our Savior. And there's one more attitude that Paul says we're to put on, and it's patience. Patience. Now, this is one of those words where I think it's more helpful to use the older translation, such as is used in the King James. Long-suffering. Long-suffering. We often, I think, think of patience wrongly. I think we, we typically think of it as waiting for something good to happen to us or waiting for God to answer a prayer in a certain way. And yes, patience can be applied that way, but that's not typically the way it's used. Patience has the idea of suffering long without responding in a sinful way. Long-suffering. And here, it's, we know because of the context, it's applying, it's applying to the body of Christ. Suffering long, enduring mistreatment at the hands of others, even your brothers and sisters in Christ. This is yet again rooted in God's treatment of us. How many times have we been offensive to God? How slow to anger has he been to us? How willing to overlook sin? He's a patient God. He's slow to anger. He has kindness and forbearance and patience toward us, Paul writes in Romans, even as we sin against him day by day. Are you patient towards those who are not where you would like them to be in terms of spiritual maturity or in terms of uh, they just don't agree with you? Are you patient? Because especially among ourselves, Christians, we ought to suffer long with each other. Because we have hope that in this life, God is making us all more like him. And so whatever conflict we have, we can hope that at the end of it, that person will be more like Christ. And I get to see it. And I'm going to be more like Christ. And they get to see it. And so we can suffer long with one another when we are frustrated with how slow we are to grow. Because we're all slow to grow, aren't we? Let's be patient with one another, confident and hopeful that God is working and he's going to finish that good work he started. Finally, a new identity leads to new attitudes, which leads to new conduct. And that's what verses 
13 and 14 talk about. We'll go through these fairly quickly. Because the attitudes are what we need to put on first before these are going to flow out of them. In verse 13, Paul says we are to bear with one another. Bear with one another. Now, now Paul is focusing on the church. So these attitudes, even though he hasn't said it expressly, we've kind of understood they've had to do mostly with the church, but they are widely applicable. All those attitudes we just talked about are the way that our mind should be formed from day to day, whether we're interacting with another brother or sister or with a coworker or the family member, saved, unsaved. It's mutually applicable. But now in verse 13, he hones it in on the church. And he shows that this is where his focus really has actually been. Because he says, bear with one another, Christians. Paul knows that church life is not always smooth sailing. He knows that. Because you know what it means to bear with one another, brothers and sisters? Tolerate one another. Endure with one another. That's, that's not maybe the first word we would expect him to use, is it? Because aren't we supposed to love one another? Well, he's going to get to that. But he starts with bear with one another. Tolerate one another. Paul calls for a high level of tolerance in the church. High level of tolerance. He knew that when you get Greeks and Jews, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarians, Scythians, slaves, and free together in one place, that's a melting pot for disaster. Much potential for conflict. And the solution is bear with one another. Tolerate one another. Now, of course, sin needs to be confronted. It does. But that's not what this is about. Everything short of clear, definable sin should be tolerated. Let me say that again. Everything short of clear, definable sin should be tolerated within the body of Christ. Born with, even if it irritates you, even if it's really difficult to like that person that thinks X, Y, or Z, if you cannot define it as a sin, then it must be tolerated. And that doesn't mean you shouldn't have a conversation about it. It doesn't mean you should try to help that person maybe grow in wisdom or in, in, in information or, or something. It doesn't mean we shouldn't have those conversations, but it does mean that in the course of it, and even if they don't change, we tolerate it. And we love in spite of it. And that's why, brothers and sisters, that's why we should be able to be a body of various backgrounds, levels of education, ethnic diversity, and political leanings. And we should be able to celebrate each of the good things that those different backgrounds and stuff bring to the table, and we should also be able to discern to get rid of those, maybe the, the sinful parts of those backgrounds. We should be able to do that. But in all things, and in all conversations, we should exercise a high, high level of tolerance. We should always assume the best motives in our brothers and sisters. Love believes all things. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13, that means believes the best about your brother or your sister. And even when there is sin, we need to bear with it. We need to bear with it. We need to be careful in how we approach sin. We ought to remember that we too have sin and we are capable of and probably have committed the same sins. So we need to be gentle. Paul writes in Galatians 6.1, we who are spiritual should restore a brother who is wandering in a spirit of Gentleness. You know what word gentleness is there? Meekness, the same word that's a, that was used in this passage. In a spirit of gentleness. Never from a position of pride or a critical spirit. 
or somehow thinking we could never be guilty of what they are guilty of. So in the case of outright sin, even in that case, brothers and sisters, we do not have the option to throw in the towel on a brother or sister. We are a means of grace towards one another. And therefore, I don't have the option to back out of the relationship. I'm here for your good. You're here for my good. We're the means God has given to help each other grow. Two more patterns of conduct. Forgive one another. Forgive one another. Paul says this, above all these things, I'm sorry. Forgive one another. Verse 13. He says, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. And then listen to how high the bar he raises. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. That's a lot of forgiveness. That's a lot of forgiveness. And brothers and sisters, there will be complaints. There will be grievances. There are, aren't there? And God hasn't left us at all in the dark how to deal with it. Forgiveness. You must forgive. Forgiveness, brothers and sisters, simply put, is extending grace to one another, the same grace we have received from the Lord Jesus Christ. Freely, you don't wait for them to somehow deserve your forgiveness. You do it freely. You do it willingly. You refuse to hold a grudge against a brother or sister. You never entertain or nurse sinful thoughts or bitterness about those that maybe have offended you or disagree with you or have actually sinned against you, it doesn't matter the scenario. We are not to do that. We are to forgive. We follow the example of our Lord. Even as he was hanging on the cross, suffering the worst torment imaginable, he prayed for those who were at that moment torturing him, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Our forgiveness of one another should be continual over and over and over again. You should never think that you could out-forgive or you, you, that you could be expired in your ability to forgive. No one should out-sin your ability to forgive. Remember the parable that Jesus told Peter when he asked him, how often should I forgive my brother? And he told, he told Peter that the, through the parable that the reason you should be able to forgive your brother endlessly is because you have been forgiven endlessly. We need to call to mind how much we've been forgiven, and we will then be much more cautious about not forgiving a much smaller debt. A, a brother or sister can never owe you what you owe God, what you did owe God, before Christ paid it. And therefore, we're to let Christ's forgiveness flow through us. We're to be filled with it, filled with it. And if you don't want to forgive your brother or sister, fill yourself with Christ's forgiveness, and then let it flow out to others. Finally, in verse 14, Paul arrives at the final piece of clothing that we are to put on. Verse 14, he says, Above all these, put on love. We were waiting for it, weren't we? Above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. He returns to the image of clothing here, put on love. And the idea of of love being above all these is that it's the crowning virtue. It's the overcoat. You're supposed to put on over all of it. Love. This is a common way of speaking in the New Testament, that love is sort of the arch virtue. In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul hails love as the virtue apart from which all other virtues are useless. 
Love heads the list of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. And Jesus said in John 13, 35, that it is our love for one another that will single us out as being his disciples. Above all else, it's our love. Love is a self-sacrificial determination to do good to another. A self-sacrificial determination to do good to another. We are a people beloved of the Lord, and we are to display that love to the others that are beloved of the Lord. We are to determine to give thought and attention to how we can help one another. As we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially those who are of the household of faith. Galatians 6.10. Paul writes that love binds everything together in perfect harmony. Now, this could mean one of two things. It could mean that it binds us together in perfect harmony, and it might mean that, and many commentators think it does mean that. And, and that's true, so we, it's not really a matter of we need to necessarily figure out which one is right, though we should try to, but so that's true. We can say that that's true, but I think it means something else. From the context, I think that it means when he says, above all these put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony, he's saying love binds together all those other virtues in perfect harmony. Love informs them. Without love, all of those things can be abused. All of those things can go sour apart from love. True biblical love. For example, true love is what keeps compassion from getting mushy and permissive. You can have permission, you can have compassion, and if it's not informed by biblical love, you might permit things that shouldn't be permitted. And that can go with a number of those virtues that have already been listed. True love is what keeps patience from becoming tolerance. Too much tolerance for sin. And so on. So a commitment to one another's spiritual good in love will both keep us from becoming too soft and it will keep us from being too harsh or too hard with one another. It's the perfect overcoat, we could say, to the lovely garments of a Christian. Brothers and sisters, we, as I said at the beginning, we live in a divided world. Divided world. I don't think there's any of us that would deny that. We live in a world that's characterized by hatred, self-interest, and intolerance. No matter how much they tout the opposite. No matter how much they tout love and tolerance. It's not there. And it will never be there. It should be here. May we, wearing the lovely garments of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, stand out as different and be an adornment to his name. Let's pray. Gracious Father, after preaching a sermon like this, my heart is humbled. Because when we look in the mirror of your word, we see how greatly we fall short. And when we gaze upon our Savior, we are both at the, we are at the same time astounded by how he showed such love for us. And we're also astounded by how little we love him. But the new self that we have put on is being renewed. It's a gradual process, and we thank you for that. We are being renewed in knowledge after your image. And we pray for more of that. We want to look at each other and see Christ in his beautiful garments. We know from another place in Scripture that we are to put on these virtues, but, but Paul calls it putting on Christ. It's Christ himself we are to put on. 
When we are feeling dry and not able to do these things, oh Lord, let us run to your grace. Because as we saw at the beginning of this passage, the foundation of it is in your grace. And if we don't have a grasp on that, on how much we've been forgiven already, and how loved we are by you, then we will never love or have patience for or humility with a brother or sister. So correct us, our Savior, and make us more like you. Let there be more of Christ in us, we pray.